day on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Coming to church with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endureth to all generations. That is wholehearted worship. It will absolutely change our lives. The truth is you were created for one amazing purpose. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Finding the Answer, where he explores the single most important question of life. Why are we here? That's coming up in just a moment on The Winning Walk. Now here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Finding the Answer. Ecclesiastes is a very bright book. It is bright because it is written under the dazzling background of darkness. And that darkness is death. You read Ecclesiastes and Solomon is always couching everything under the background of death. And he asks over and over again in many, many ways, what is life for under the sun? He asks, what does your life mean? And by the way, it's interesting to observe as you read Ecclesiastes, he talks in general terms, and then he, he talks about I, I, I. Remember we said how narcissistic Solomon is? I, 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 I. But we come to the fifth chapter, which we're going to look at, and he says you. Second person saying, he says you. He changed from I, I, I and general kind of teaching to you, he makes it very pointed. And the question he keeps asking is, what does your life mean? What difference does your life make under the sun? What are you here for? What can you and I do in this life that has not only meaning now, but meaning a hundred years, a thousand years, they will have any significance in all eternity. And he keeps asking that question, and it's a very uncomfortable question. What is your life for under the sun? I can tell you something. Modern man has absolutely no answer to that question. It's a question far beyond any answer they can ever possibly give that makes sense and is clear. But Solomon keeps on asking it. What is your life for under the sun? And let's be honest, 
We don't like for that question to continually come up. <laughs> you know, you know, what is your life for? You know, that, that, that's, that's a troublesome question. It's like having a, an elephant in the room. If we emptied this section, we brought in a giant elephant, and that elephant was here, I think we'd notice it, right? Anybody? Oh, didn't know, didn't see the elephant over there. My goodness. We brought him in. He's over here. And the elephant is this very question in, that faces everybody living on the planet. What is your life for? So we have to deal with that question, but we deal with it by hiding it. How do you hide an elephant? <laughs> Here's this big elephant. How do you hide it? Here's this big question. What is your life for under the sun? How do you hide it? We hide that elephant, that elephantine question by diversion. We'd have an elephant over here we'd bring in. You know how we'd hide it? We'd just throw out a lot of mice. Two or three hundred mice just spread them around. I'm telling you, we wouldn't pay any attention to that big elephant, would we? Mice running around, man, we'd have pandemonium. I mean, we'd be running, squeaking, hollering, jumping in chairs, and we'd forget about that elephant. That's the way we forget about this question. We hide it because we got a lot of mice running around. I'm going over here. I'm doing that. I'm involved in that. And they're running around, so we get away from this greatest question that can be asked. There's no bigger question than that. What is your life? What is my life for? That's the number one question. You can't name another question more significant, more important, more relevant than that question. There's not another one. What is my life for? We don't deal with that elephant because of mice. Also, we don't deal with that elephant because of indifference. I'm just indifferent to that. I mean, that's way out. That's some kind of fancy scholarly deal. I, you know, what is my life for? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, well, it's like apathy. I love the story of the college classroom, a young boy on the back row, dead asleep. He got there, put his head down, went dead asleep. Professor was talking about apathy. And he said, I want somebody to give me a definition for apathy. Nobody said anything. He said, I'm going to call on, on Jimmy Smithson. Jimmy Smithson, tell me what is apathy. And that was that old boy asleep on the back row. His buddy punched him and said, he's called on you. He woke up and said, I don't care. <laughs> Professor said, that's exactly right. That's apathy. <laughs> So we don't deal with this humongous greatest question that can be asked because of, do we're diverted with mice because of apathy, indifference? And we try to hide it through uh, pleasure. I'm just going to have a good time. I'm going to enjoy life all that I can. I'm going to keep my calendar full. And I'm just going to go and move and dance and, and jive. And I'm going to have all the pleasure I can. And I'm not, going to, oh, I'm not going to notice that big elephant over there. 
Why am I here? What am I here for? I'm just going to live my life out, blotting that out with good times, all the pleasure I can get out of life, all that gusto that we can get. Another way we don't deal with that big elephantine question is hide and seek. We just close our eyes. We're hiding. We don't look at that. We don't think about it. We turn our eyeballs inside out. And we peep, oh, 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 what am I here for? Scary, oh, we stay away from it. Another way we do it is propaganda. Well, that is a metaphysical question. Uh, that is a question that has baffled the, the scholars and the big brains through the ages. And I, I, But folks, that question is the greatest question that can be asked, the most important, significant question that we have to face. What are you here for? Now, if Ecclesiastes asks the greatest question that can be asked, if you can find another book that would give an answer to that greatest question that was ever asked, that book would be greater than the book of Ecclesiastes. Where are you going to find a book that gives an answer to what are you and I here for? Where is that book? Can you name that book? We will find it in a very unusual place. Do you know where that answer is given as it points us to the ultimate answer? The very next book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. Man, I, who in the world would have looked there? It was so close by. You see, Ecclesiastes, Solomon is writing as a philosopher. He is thinking. Song of Songs is written as someone who sings. We think with our mind. We sing with our heart. So you look at Song of Songs. It is a song of love. And it is a song in which God is the singer. And the notes on the script at which God is singing for, guess what the notes are? They're your life, my life, your life, my life, your life. We're the notes on the script, and God is singing this song of love. That's the theme of the song in Song of Solomon, and the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, would be a magnificent introduction to the greatest life and the greatest song that ever walked this earth, and that is Jesus. I'm not going to tell you the total answer here. You wouldn't come back for the next half a dozen weeks. <laughs> but we see the direction in which we're going, in which this very big question has baffled folks, and we see the answer is going to be clear and plain and practical, but we see the song of songs serves as an introduction to the greatest story, the greatest song that was ever sung on this earth, and that's the song in the story of Jesus Christ. Don't want to tell you everything yet. <laughs> this is one of those little teasers as to where we're going to end up. 
as where all this is pointed in that great question, we'll have a very clear, practical answer. The Song of Songs begins to sing this song and point us to the answer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth we find in your book. It comes to us from so many sources, so many ways, so many perspectives. Help us to get it and not miss it and live it out. Use this time now supernaturally. Let me get out of the way in Jesus' name. Amen. A Super Bowl is going to be played today. Had you forgotten it? <laughs> I want to say something up front. Now, you got to listen carefully because you're going to leave and say, ah, oh, pastor, sit now. Say something up front. God, in my opinion, does not care who wins the Super Bowl. I'm sorry. I do not believe it is legit to pray for victory in an athletic event. I don't think God pays any attention to that. Also, let me say up front, which team, New England or the Eagles, are the most pious is not going to determine who's going to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> now, having said that, let me make these comments. <laughs> That's our foundation. <laughs> I have a tie with New England Patriots. New England Patriots, as far as I know, is the only team in the NFL who has a full-time chaplain. And that full-time chaplain happens to be the son of one of the men I discipled when I was pastor in Columbia, South Carolina. And he is a godly young man. He loves this book. He is evangelical. And I'm sure he's had an impact to some degree on that team and everything that surrounds it. Uh, the recent word is that they have a small, small group that come to chapel, but a couple of rookies came in this year, and they're more inclined for Christ than any of the rest of the team he's discovered in the years that he's been there. Having said that, you go to the Philadelphia Eagles, you have a whole different arena. They have adopted for this year one word, wholeheartedly. And when I bumped into that, I said, that's what I'm talking about. God has led us to Ecclesiastes chapter number five, verse one through seven. And that's the operative word, wholeheartedly. And the Eagles had adopted that word at the beginning of the season. And they have on that team from the quarterback, Carson Wentz, who's injured, who would have been in the NFL had he not yet hurt, most valuable player, I believe. Nick Foles, who is a, a wonderful Christian young man, intimate friends with Case Keenan. They pray together, their wives, they travel together. God-fearing young man who says he's going into full-time Christian service when he gets through this little stint there in the NFL. And I want you to see a little bit, just a taste of what's on the internet about the Eagles, and um, 
It'll give you a taste of what's going on on that team. Listen carefully. I was kind of living off of everyone else's salvation. I wasn't diving into the Word or exploring that the way I explored everything else around me. Grew up going to church, um, got confirmed in a Lutheran church, but I never really knew exactly what I believed or why. I remember just having some college mentors, some uh, former teammates kind of just help walking me through the Word. You know, I, I ended up reading the whole New Testament of the Bible in the first three months of my um, freshman semester, and it just became real to me. You know, for me, you know, I was kind of on this downward spiral because the things that I was trying to place in my life to give me satisfaction would last for a little bit, and then they'd fade away. And that's when I gave my life to Christ, and really, He supplied that, that satisfaction. You can't go to church. So you had the opportunity to attend chapel. Um, every Monday night, we have a, a couple's Bible study. We have a Thursday night team Bible study. And then Saturday nights, uh, we actually get together the night before the game and just kind of pray, talk through uh, the Word, what guys have been reading, what they're struggling with, and just kind of keep it real with each other. To have that here in an NFL um, facility like this, it's, it's really special. Um, it's so easy to take your mind and your eyes off of the ultimate prize, and that's living for the Lord. Did you hear what the Eagles do Wednesday night with their wives, Bible study? Thursday night, just the players, Bible study, worship. Saturday night before every game, they talk about the word that week and they pray together. They've got a large percentage of that football team, the managers, and all that surround it. And they have taken the, the word wholeheartedly. And then they said, we play for an audience of one. And that's the audience they're playing for, that women on that team. Now, having said that, we are to use, as they are using, the platform that they have been given to make a difference in this world. Now we come to the fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes. And the fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes, bam! The theme would be, you'll see, wholeheartedly. Same watchword for the Eagles established at the first of this year. Wholeheartedly. And here we see Solomon takes on a whole new characteristic. And it's stunning. But we see now Solomon, I think, goes back to the early years of his life. He was a young man, discipled by a godly man, a godly prophet how he became king, how he built the temple, how he dedicated the temple, how he prayed in the temple, how he brought sacrifice to the temple, how he studied the word and obeyed the word. But now he's an old man, and he didn't finish well. All of a sudden, he'd married all these women from all over the world for so-called political reasons, and now they'd brought all their pagan altars into Israel all these mice had come, and now he'd moved away from God. And we see that, incidentally, in a little interesting thing. Don't miss this. Uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the Hebrew word that is used for God is usually Elohim, which is a, just a pedestrian word. It's just a reference to God in a, in a general sense. The covenant word for God in the Bible, mentioned five, 500 times, it's an interesting word. It's the word Jehovah or Yahweh. In other words, Solomon writes knowing that somehow 
He had drifted away from having a covenant with God. What does it mean to have a covenant with God? This word that is used, it means there is an understanding of grace. It means there is a hope that the Messiah would come and change this world. You see, that's the covenant relationship God has with Israel. And those are the words. Solomon does not use that word. He knows somehow he has moved out from under the covenant, the protection, the umbrella of Almighty God. So he does not use the word Yahweh or Jehovah. Interesting, isn't it? But he comes here and tells us, let me tell you about worship. He built a temple. He knew about worship. His dad, David, who had experienced so powerfully the grace of God, was a man after God's own heart. He knew worship. Solomon had worshiped. And now he tells us in these seven verses, follow me carefully, how to worship and how not to worship. That's big, isn't it? Did you know one of the things that distinguishes us from animals is that we can worship? Animals can't worship. We can worship. We're made in the image of God. We can call upon God. We can know God. The human beings, we have the capacity to worship. Ah, to God. He tells us, first of all, how to worship. Look at it. Verse 1, chapter 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen. In other words, when you came to church this morning to worship, did you guard your steps? Before you came, did you pray, Lord, speak to me today? Lord, I need a word from you today. Come and tabernacle among us today. Did you come with expectation? Did you come that I hope that God would break through and, and heal, restore, inform, guide, bring you through this dark place or lift you up in the place of opportunity you're in so you'll maximize your life? Did you come praying? That's what he's saying. Guard your steps when you go in the house of God. Don't go into church casually or flat-footed. Anticipation. You see, for worship to take place, not only must there be testimony and word and song and the teaching of the book, but there have to be those who receive. Those who come with open minds, open hearts, wanting to feel the touch, the reality of the living God. See, it's a two-fold way. And he says, we come to listen. We come to listen. We draw near to listen. That's the first. He says, this is how you worship. You can sit in the pew, go through the motion, check off the box. I went to church. It was okay. And say, boy, you know, he didn't perform as good today. The choir didn't have the unction today. But you see, we come and say, Lord Jesus, I need your word. Let your spirit come and Bring my life into reality with you. I want to catch fire, have meaning, significance, and confidence, hope. All of that happens in worship, private worship and corporate worship like we're engaged in now. Don't come, come in tiptoe. Come with great expectancy. Come near and listen. And then he tells us how not to worship. And look, these are strong, strong words. They're, they're a little frightening to me as I kept looking at them. 
He says, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools as they do not know they are doing evil. In other words, phony worship, foolish worship is coming like a fool to church, coming like a fool when you do your quiet time, coming like a fool. And he says, when you come as a hypocrite without sincerity, look what happens. He says, it's not just a, not a good thing to do. He said, it is an evil thing to do. Ladies and gentlemen, it is absolutely dangerous to go to church. It's a ferocious thing. It's a frightening thing. It's an overwhelming thing to go and say, I'm going to worship and not worship. It is the worship or the sacrifice of fools. And then he tells us exactly, precisely what the sacrifice, what phony, hypocritical worship is all about. Look what he says, first of all, in verse 2. He says, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. What is he saying? He said, fools worship foolishly, engage in foolish worship when we forget who God is. We forget who God is. I remember the staff once in a meeting said, oh, we need to have a come to Jesus moment. Let me tell you something. I don't like that terminology. No, no, no. We use Christ as an expletive of all things. We got to remember who God is. Who is God? He is omniscient. He's all-knowing. There's no thought we've ever had, no, no emotion we've ever experienced, nothing we've ever done or said or not done. He doesn't know about. <laughs> you don't have any secrets from God. I don't have any secrets from God. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He speaks, and it happens. All-powerful. This is who God is. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere. That's the reason I'm always sort of uneasy when somebody with a pious twang in their voice says, Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you and your Holy Spirit in this place. Let me tell you, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is already there anytime, anywhere, any place, anywhere you go. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. Do I have to invite him? He's already there. So we have to understand worship. Worship. And then he would say that worship has to transform areas of your life. Remember years ago, this stands out in my mind. I, I got up and I had my quiet time. I was in the Word. It's one of those times when heaven opens, you know, and God speaks, and I guess I cried and, and I confessed, and He came close, and I was inspired. And it was one of those mountaintop moments, you know, you have not every day. It was just a mountaintop moment, and I went in and ate breakfast with. Joe Beth and the kids, and I went and got dressed in my suit, and, and uh, I, I just was walking out, and I kissed Joe Beth, and I went out, and she said, 
would you mind taking out the trash? <laughs> and I wanted to say, yeah, I mind, but I didn't. <laughs> and I went back and I, I, I got the trash, knowing that my oldest son had walked by that trash four times already that morning, <laughs> and he hadn't even made up his bed, I'm sure of that. But I went back to get the trash, and, and there was some, it wasn't, tied up with little tie things, you know, and, and I saw some more apples. By the way, while I'm here, <laughs> let me tell you one of my pet peeves. One pet peeve is when people park over the line and take two places. That's just infuriating. <laughs> I think that ought to be capital punishment. <laughs> but I've got a greater pet peeve than that. That is those little sticky things they put on fruit. Whatever government regulation brought that to bear, that ought, they ought to go to jail forever. <laughs> and they put them on evidently with permanent glue. I mean, it's unbelievable. What in the world does that do? Can anybody tell me? No. It's some gimmick, some company that I'd love to be the company that makes those little sticky things. They put on all the fruit in America. Anyway. Back to the trash. <laughs> and I got all the trash together and I put it on and it was full and I take it out and I remember I got the slam dump, dunk it outside in the trash thing and some of it came out on my, my <laughs> pants and Joe Best said, we've got another one. Boy, I went storming back in there and I got that other one and I went out and I this was the guy who just a little bit before in the holy of holies of prayer, this is a guy who is covered in Shekinah <laughs> taking out trash. <laughs> you see, my problem then and many times since and probably yours is we don't transfer our worship to how we live, how we think, what we do, because worship is to transform your life and my life in the mundane things as well as the big, big things that we encounter, is it not? So he says we are fools engaged in foolish worship when we forget him with whom we are dealing with him whom we are worshiping. And then he says us the second thing involved here about foolish worship, the sacrifice of fools. Look at it, verse 3. He says, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. You are a fool engaged in foolish worship, and I am when our worship is filled with words and dreams. We go to God and we've got our agenda. God, let me tell you what I believe you need to say to me and I want to make this deal with you. And God, 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 and we talk and we talk and we have all our dreams and our aspirations and what we think and what we know and how we cut a special deal with God and we just talk. When God wants to say something to you and me, when in the world is he going to say it even when we're trying to worship, when we're our mind and our tongues are just babbling? 
You have an appointment with Bill Gates. Oh. And you sit down, Mr. Gates, and said, Mr. Gates, I want to tell you what I think about the internet, about the computer industry, and about IT. And you spend all your time telling him what you know about the iPhone and all the rest of it. And you walk, is that stupid? Man, you are the man who started some of the. I sit down with Albert Einstein. Dr. Einstein, I had a course in physics when I was in high school. I want to tell you what I have figured out about this physical. You're with Albert Einstein. Is that insane? We with God. He might want to say something to us. Speak a word. But we're just, oh, talking about dreams. And we quote scripture to God. I never understand that. Sometimes we just wait and be still. Elijah wanted to meet with God. Man, he'd had a tough time. Had a victory. Now he was depressed. He's in a cave. He said, oh, God, I need a word from you. He needed to worship. And, boy, here comes a tornado. Winds blowing. And he said, boy, God is going to be in this tornado. I know he's going to speak to me in this mighty tornado. But the Bible says the Lord didn't say a word to him. Huh? Huh? Tornado, God didn't speak. And then there's the earthquake. Man, the earth begins to separate. It's rattling. That'll, that'll get your attention. Surely God is going to speak to his prophet uh, Elijah in the earthquake. But God didn't say a word. Then there was a fire. Oh, that's how God speaks. Here's a giant fire in the middle of the fire. God is going to really zap Elijah and say the word that he needs. God went in the fire. Then the Bible says God spoke the way he usually speaks, in a still, small voice. We're fools engaged in foolish worship when we just spend that time battling around. Maybe God wants to say something to you and me. Let's learn how to still and quiet ourselves so he can speak, okay? And then he talks about another kind of fools who engage in foolish worship, this foolish sacrifice. And look at it. It starts in verse 4. He said, when you make a vow to the Lord, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. And he talks about vows. Have you ever said to God, God, if I get a good report on this health situation, I'm going to? or I'm going to start, or I'm going to stop. Many promises to God, he takes that seriously. Yeah. You see, if I tell you something, I want to keep my word. If I tell God something, I certainly want to keep my word. It's a vow. We made a vow, we got married. A vow. We, we know Jonah made a vow at the temple. Oh, Lord, I'll serve you. But God said, I've got an assignment for you, Jonah. I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I hate those Ninevites. So he runs and heads out for Tarsus. You know the story. He's a shipwreck. He's thrown over the sea. He's swallowed by giant fish, remember? And he's living in that fish. And I love this passage. It says he was in the fish three days and three nights, and then he prayed. I don't believe it had taken me that long. 
That's how far he got away. And his prayer is tremendous, but he ends up by saying, I will keep the vow that I made to serve you, to go where you want me to go. He ends up in Nineveh and has one of the greatest turnings to God that you see in all of history. And the sorriest sermon he preached there you've ever heard. Repent or 40 days, you've had it. I mean, that doesn't have any glamour to it, does it? But they came to Christ. Amazing. Keep your word to God. You say, well, God is a God of grace, a God of forgiveness. You know, he'll forgive me when I break my word. Go back to that vow. Let me tell you something. God's love and God's grace is not going to bail us out time and time again until, first of all, we meet the next thing that we read here in our scripture, and that is genuine worship. It's found in that seventh verse, and it's so clear. For in many dreams and many words, there is emptiness. Worship of fools, forgot who God is. Worship of fools, many words. Worship of fools, I've made these vows to God and I didn't keep them. But now he said, let me tell you how you worship me. He says, fear God. Fear God. Listen, God is holy, ladies and gentlemen. All this pedestrianism, this somebody up there likes me. Oh, God is so sweet. And listen, the fear of God is where we begin. Our awesome God. He's Abba to be sure, but also he is a God not to be trifled with. That's our God. You read Moses there. He was a shepherd. He walked by that burning bush. He said, there's a bush that's on fire that's not being consumed. I'm going to go over there and see what's happening. And he went toward the bush. And God speaks and says, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And it says that Moses hid his face in fear. It's not a fear of bodily harm, that lightning is going to strike us, but it is a fear of deep conviction of where we are with him. You see, if there's active sin in your life and my, my life, you can go to church, give to church, sing, pray solo, preach sermons. You can do everything in the world, but God's not going to deal with you and me until we get clean with him. So it begins so many times with confession and repentance, does it not? Confession and repentance. The fear of God. That's where he began. An awesome God, a loving God, a triumphant God, a caring God, a God who came down to this earth to meet us exactly where we are in Jesus Christ. That is the God whom we are to worship. This is how you worship. This is how you do not worship. You begin with the fear, the reverence to a holy God. The word fan, we got a lot of fans. We're going to watch the Super Bowl today. They're going to be filled up that stadium, 70,000 of them in Minneapolis, and they're fans. And the word fan leads to the word fanatic. The word fan in the original Latin means passionate devotion to God. 
Isn't that something? A fan passionately devoted to God. And that's what we are to become as worshipers. We're to be fans of God. Celebrate him, love him, listen to him. Don't offer the sacrifice, the worship of fools, but go to him in openness and let him touch and deal and lead and heal and forgive. We are to be fans of him. And what the bottom line here is, how are we to worship him wholeheartedly? Wholeheartedly. We're to love the Lord our God with all our strength, with all of our power, with all our might, with our mind, with our souls, with the whole shooting match of your life and my life, wholeheartedly. How do you land this plane? I think we land it in a psalm that pretty well sums all of this up. The 100th Psalm. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates. Come into church with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. That is wholehearted worship, and it sums up these verses as well as they can be summed up. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. We learn to worship like that, just a little bit of that wholehearted worship as fans of the Lord God Almighty, it will absolutely change our lives. Now, just before we end today's program, Dr. Young is here in the studio to share more proven truth about the transforming power of worship. Uh, Dr. Young, it's easy to compartmentalize worship as just a song we sing on Sunday, but what does it look like to lead a life of worship and what kind of impact does that have? The number one thing we are to do as Christians is to worship, certainly on Sunday, but also daily as we spend time with Him. And also we begin to understand that life in itself is a worship. We are sacrificing ourselves every day in every way, whatever our vocation, whatever our calling, whatever we are to do. Uh, Ephesians says we are to worship in our act of work. In other words, if you are a roofer, let's say, you're, you're, you're worshiping the Lord. You're serving the Lord as you, as you are a roofer. If you're a housewife, if you're a businessman, if you're a salesman, do it as if you are worshiping, as if you're serving the Lord. This gives all of life a supernatural meaning. And it's a beautiful thing. It's like the, the people who were constructing a, a cathedral years ago, and they said, what are you doing? They said, we're building a building. Somebody else said, uh, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're building a, a church. And somebody else said, what are you doing? And they said, we're building for God a place of worship. 
put identity in your vocation. Let everybody know that you are working not for a company, not for a salary, but you're working according to God's standards, and your work will become a beautiful act of worship. Very helpful. Thank you, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.